is four years ago this weekend, uh, we gathered, like I said, together for the first time as a church. Four years ago this weekend, God started a work here in Fairfax by establishing a church that was committed to glorifying God by making disciples, disciples who know the gospel, disciples who are living out the implications of the gospel, disciples who are sharing the message of the gospel, people who are knowing, living, sharing, and doing that together in community with one another. And whether you were a part of those 20 people who were at the very beginning of starting this church off, or you just have come recently, man, this is our church family together. And I'm so thankful for the so many people that serve to make this happen every week. Um, This isn't my church. This isn't just an individual's church. This is Jesus's church. And we get to be a part of it and come together to serve with and serve one another. And man, God has changed lives in and through the ministry of this church. Brian is just one of those stories. Uh, He's just one of those stories of how God's worked. And as as he said, it's just a, a normal way. But you heard him talk about community. You heard him talk about getting involved in the lives of others, and letting other people get involved in his life as well. And so I just want you to hear this morning, if you're a college student, God has a place for you here in this community. Um, You hear Brian say that. He's a college student getting involved here. God has a place for you in this community. If you're single, God has a place for you in this community. If you're married, with or without kids, God has a place for you in this community. If you're older or you're younger, God has a place for you in this community. If you know Christ or you don't know Christ, God has a place for you in this community. We're a family. That's something we've talked about for the last four years. We're a family being rooted and built up in, by, and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're, we're doing that for God's glory, for our good, and for the good of others. And so, man, I'm thankful that four years later, this church is here. It's, it's here. Um, And God is doing good things in and through this church. People's lives are continuing to be changed. The gospel is continuing to to be proclaimed. And it's God and God alone who deserves all praise and all glory for that. Amen? Amen. This is Jesus' church and he's building it. So we're going to jump into the word now. Before we do that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, we're, we're going, we're starting this series. We started it last week. It's a five-week series talking about the freedom that's given to us and offered to us in Jesus. And so we're going to continue that this morning. And so let me just say this real quick. If you need a Bible, though, would you go ahead and raise your hand? Somebody will bring a Bible around to you. We're going to be opening up to God's Word. It's something we've done for the last four years. Every Sunday we get in the Scriptures together because we believe this is God's Word to us. So just keep your hand up so they can find you. Uh, but as we do that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer, give thanks And pray for our time in his word this morning. Father God, we come before you and we are just grateful, thankful that you, in your providence, saw fit to see this church planted and established and rooted here in Fairfax four years ago. Lord, you brought families and people together throughout this last four years, some who have have come and gone and new faces and families that are here even today. And they're they're all a part of your story in the life of this church. And so we want to praise you this morning, give you thanks this morning for all that you have done. And we're hopeful and grateful and looking forward to and expectant of what you will do as we move forward into the next chapter in life of this church. And so we pray earnestly now, Father, by your Spirit, that you would work in our time together this morning, that this morning as we gather together as your people those that are near and those that are far from you this morning, wherever we happen to be, that we gather together under your word by the power of your spirit. And we pray that this morning wouldn't just be a normal morning, 
but that you would do something significant in our lives today because we open up your word, because we sit under your word this morning. Lord, we are desperate for you. We're as desperate for you today as we were four years ago as a church. We're still figuring things out. We're still a mess. But man, we're thankful, as Brian said, that your grace is so consistent. And so we rest in that today. And we just pray that you do a transformative work in our hearts and lives this morning. Holy Spirit, we plead with you to come and work in a powerful way today for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of my favorite places to sit at our house is on our screened-in porch. We have a screened-in porch. We live right in the city of Fairfax in a house that was built in the 50s, uh, like so many houses around here. And something that drew us to this house is it has this screened-in porch that had been added onto the house. And it's, it's one of my favorite places to sit when the weather is nice. I mean, we, I meet people out there. Sometimes we do premarital counseling out there, or we'll sit out there as a family and hang out or read. I sit out there and work on the sermon. this sermon this week. I sat out there a few times uh, this week even just to work on just a great place to sit and hang out. Well, about a year ago, one of the screen doors on the screen in porch had a big hole in it. It it had kind of torn a bit and was kind of just would flap in the wind. And I knew I needed to fix it, but just didn't make plans or time to get around to fixing it. And so one day I walked out on this porch and saw that I had a friend uh, waiting for me out there. A bird had flown into the screened-in porch through this big gaping hole and was just hanging out. He's flying all over the place. He's kind of freaking out, right? Birds uh, don't like to be in contained spaces. And uh, he was flying around. He's freaking out. He's pooping all over the place. And he's just having a, a difficult time. So I don't really know what to do. I'm not a bird catcher, uh, so I'm not sure exactly what I'm supposed to do to get this bird out. So I'm like, I'll just give him some time. He got himself in here through this big hole. Surely he can figure out how to get himself back out through said hole. Uh, And so I just waited a little while, but I guess he wasn't that smart. And so he just hung out in there for a little while and didn't get out. So eventually I decided I had to go out there. I have to help this bird get out somehow. Uh, And so I, I went out and I propped open one of the doors and I got a broom and was figuring I'd get, somehow I'd get him out. Now I'm a little bit nervous. I'm just kind of picturing Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, right? Like he's not going to fly out. He's just going to land on my head and start pecking at my eye and call of his bird friends to come around too. <laughs> this is our chance. We got him. You know, he's out here. Uh, but thankfully I was able to shoo him out of the screened-in porch and he was back free again. You know, something interesting, though, about this bird, about this whole scene, is that the bird, he, he fluttered and flapped a lot. He, he flew around a lot. He, he pooped all over the deck furniture. I mean, he was all over the place trying to get out. He saw the outside world. He saw beyond the screen. He knew he wasn't supposed to be in there, and he wanted to be outside of this screened-in porch. But eventually, he grew tired, almost kind of resigned to the fact that he couldn't figure out how to get out. He couldn't figure out what he was supposed to do. There didn't seem to be a way out. He was captive. And so what happened is he became still. He stopped moving around. He just kind of hung out there in the screened-in porch. He, He tried and he tried and he tried, but nothing changed for him. He was still stuck in a place he didn't want to be in that he wasn't supposed to be in. Now you and I, we live in a broken world. It's not difficult for us to see or understand because all of us experience that in different ways. And the reason for the brokenness of our world is because of what the Bible calls sin. But it's easy for us to think about sin out there. But the reality of the brokenness of the world we live in, the root of that is because of the sin that's within here, within our own hearts and our own lives. Every single person is born captive and enslaved to sin. We're trapped. We're trapped. But it doesn't have to remain that way. 
And I just want to say this morning, if you know Christ, it isn't that way. You are free. You are free. But sometimes, if we're honest, even though we might know the reality of the gospel of Jesus, we might know the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, we still find ourselves feeling stuck. We still find ourselves feeling captive to our sin. We've tried and failed so many times to root sin out of our lives and nothing seems to change. Or others make us feel guilty or shameful or fearful because of our sin. And if we're honest, I think there's a lot of us that either have been or currently are in a place of exhaustion and despair. We feel beat up. We feel broken down. And we're in maybe a place like that bird of resignation. We're pretty close to it. We can start to lose hope or become despondent. Or maybe even worse, we just keep faking it. We just keep faking it. We know what to say. We know what to do like Brian said. I need to become adept at being able to kind of put on a front of things are okay. But we have this quiet feeling in the quiet moments of our lives. We, we flap our wings. We fly around a bit looking for a way out. But in those quiet moments when we're alone by ourselves, we aren't sure we're ever really going to change. Or that change is even possible for us. And then I can, I can say that because I've been there so many times. So many times in my, in my Christian life, knowing that there's sin in my life, knowing that there's something that's not quite right, and just feeling like nothing's ever going to change. I'm never going to be able to overcome this. I'm never going to see this rooted out in my life. I've even had pastors look at me in the face and say to me things like, you're never going to change. You're never going to change. You can't. And you know what? We can start to believe those voices. We can start to believe those things in our own minds and our own hearts we have to understand that that voice sounds a whole lot like the voice of the enemy. It's spoken to you with a forked tongue, whispering in your ear, you cannot be free of this. You never will be free of this. This is who you are, so just accept it. Just embrace it. Well, today we're going to look at a few verses in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and what I want to do today is really simple. I want to lift your eyes up. I want to encourage your heart this morning. And I want to shoo you out of your perceived prison into freedom. Freedom that has been secured for you and freedom that is available to you in Christ. So let's get to it. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Maybe one of the greatest chapters in all of the scriptures. The Apostle Paul writes this. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning. 1 through 13. Romans chapter 8. This is God's living and active word. And so that means this is for you this morning. This is what the Apostle Paul says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done with the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, 
but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now we're going to divide this sermon up into three points. And so if you're taking notes this morning, and I just encourage you to take notes when someone's preaching, whether it's me or anybody else. It's just a a good way to pay attention and to reflect on God's Word being preached in community groups. We spend time walking through the sermon every week, just being able to digest it and apply it to our lives. And having notes in front of you is helpful because on Wednesday you might have forgotten what you heard on Sunday. And so just encourage you to take notes when uh, when someone's preaching. But we're, these are our three points this morning. Three simple words. Well, maybe four words, but three points. Shackled, saved, and set free. Shackled, saved, and set free. Now, I read all 13 of these verses, and you may be thinking, how in the world are we going to get through all of this uh, this morning? And there's, there's a lot in here. And so we're not going to focus on every single verse. Uh, we're going to pick a few verses to focus on to see this big picture of what Paul's talking about. And so we're going to begin by looking at the end. We're going to look at verse 13 first in our first point, shackled. Let me read verse 13 again to you. This is what Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now what's Paul saying here? This is a significant statement. It's a, it's a cause and effect reality. It's, it's if you live according to the flesh, then you will die. It's not a possibility. It's not a maybe. It doesn't say maybe if you live this way, it might happen that you're going to die. This is a definitive statement that Paul's making here. Now you may say, well, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? To live according to the flesh means that we are seeking to live life by our own rules, dictated by our own desires. And our culture constantly tells us that's a great thing to do. Get after it. Pursue what you want to pursue. Live your own way. Make your own way. But it's a false view of freedom. It's it's the belief that living the way you want, pursuing your desires and pursuing your wants and rejecting divine authority is actually freeing to you. Our culture will tell us things like where religion is, is so constrictive, it's rules, and I don't want that, so just go run on a different road and you'll be free. But what we see the Apostle Paul saying here to us this morning is the complete opposite of that. He says this doesn't lead to freedom, it leads to death. See, the true reality of every person is that we are not autonomous, self-generated, self-propagated, self-sovereign beings. We are creatures And we are made in the image of our Creator. And our Creator is King. And He is a good King. And He is a gracious King and a loving King and a careful King. He is faithful and He's just and He's holy. He's powerful and He's righteous and He's all-knowing and He's unchanging and He's eternal. That's who our Creator is. 
But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they believed a lie about God. In fact, they exchanged the truth that they knew about God for a lie. They traded in that truth and and accepted a lie about God. They believed that God was withholding something good from them. Even though he'd given them so many things to enjoy, they believed that God was withholding something good from them. They believed that his commands were inherently restrictive instead of lovingly protective. They thought, well, if there must be, if there's anything for God telling us to do, it must not be a good thing. See, Adam and Eve, they disconnected God's loving care from God, from who he actually is. And so they went their own way, and the result was broken relationship. They were removed from God's presence, given over to what they most wanted. They wanted to live for their glory instead of God's glory. And the reality is, when any person lives for their glory and their fame, instead of God's glory and his fame, the result is always the same. It's physical and spiritual death. And this is what the Bible calls sin, if you're not a follower of Christ, you may have heard this term before, but this is what the Bible calls sin. It's, it's rebellion and rejection of God and his kind and loving rule as king and creator over your life. As one pastor says, he says the root of our sin is a mistrust in God's goodness and an inordinate love of other things. It's a mistrust of God's goodness and an inordinate love of other things. We tend to worship creation instead of the creator. The sin is like a disease that affects us to our very core. It's pervasive and destructive, and every person born into this world is infected by it. It's why Paul says in verse 7, look at verse 7 again, it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. When your mind is set on the flesh, when it's living according to the flesh, it means that you are, you are just so engrossed in your sin, so captive to your sin, it creates enmity between you and God. You can't, you can't be in relationship with him. It's hostile to God. And it says, for it does not submit to God's law. We reject God's law. And then he says this, indeed, it cannot. See, sin affects us completely. It clouds our hearts and our minds. It makes us unable and unwilling to come to God for relationship, for grace, and for love. Sin is a disease. It's a sickness. We are born with it. It's inherited from our first parents, but it's a disease and a sickness that we cannot overcome on our own. See, sin promises you freedom, but what it actually does is take you captive. It promises you freedom, but it takes you captive. It places shackles on you. It enslaves you. And the result is always the same. It's always death. See, when we recognize this, this idea of being shackled, it creates this helplessness within us. Kind of like that bird. We become, we become feeling like we're helpless. It's why Paul says what he says in chapter 7, verse 24. This is right above uh, to the beginning of chapter 8. Look at what he says there. He, he's talked about his wrestling with sin. And then he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me? This is your natural state. Shackled. Being shackled. But it's not the end of the story, and it doesn't have to be the end of your story. Our second point is saved. Last week, we said something really important about God, and I just want to reiterate it again because I think it's really important for us to, to chew on it and understand it, and it's this. God does not reluctantly love you. He purposefully loves you. God does not reluctantly love you. He purposefully loves you. 
See, your sin and my sin have shackled us, enslaved us to itself, to sin. And because that has separated us from God, it's created this, this infinite chasm between us and God, and we're without hope. Yet God in his eternal and infinite love purposed and planned to come after you and after me. He loved you so much that he sent his only son to rescue you, to save you. To save you from your sin, to save you from your rebellion, to save you from yourself, to save you from death. That's what Paul's saying in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. It says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God did what the law couldn't do. The law that was weakened by the flesh could not do. See, we have to understand the law doesn't make us sin. The law doesn't make us sin. It just points out the reality of our sin. It points out the the reality that we're unable and unwilling to walk in faithfulness with our God. That our hearts are consistently drawn away from worshiping the one that alone is worthy of worship and worshiping other things instead. God's law is good, but our sin has perverted God's law. And the law was powerless to overcome our shackled selves, but God isn't. So what does he do? Well, Paul says he sends his own son. He sends his own son to take on flesh in order to overcome sinful flesh and sin. Jesus was made like us in every way, but did not sin. And because he did not sin, he broke the back of sin. By actually fulfilling the law of God for us, Jesus did something that none of us are capable of doing on our own. And by doing that, he condemned sin in the flesh. See, it wasn't enough just for Jesus to live a perfect life as a representative for us. Sin needed to be dealt with, and so Jesus went to a cross. See, something we need to understand is that he condemned your sin by being condemned for your sin. He condemned your sin by being condemned for your sin. Every rebellious thought, every wicked action, every ounce of false worship and unbelief of God's people, he took on his back. When Jesus was nailed to a cross, so was your sin. He was nailed to the cross with him. Why? Paul tells us in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us. In us. This isn't disconnected from you. Jesus knew what he was doing when he went to the cross. It's so that God's good commands and his good law might be fulfilled in you. Because now if you know Christ, you no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see what Paul's saying here? What he's saying here is because of what Christ has done, because he lived a perfect life, because he went to the cross and took on your sin, because he rose again from the grave, you now are able to walk in faithfulness and obedience to God's good and gracious commands for you. You used to be dead in your flesh, but God has made you alive in and by and through His Spirit. We were all dead men and women. All dead men and women walking. No life in us. We were ruled by our flesh. Zombies, really. We're aimlessly wandering around. All we can think about is what we want and we desire. We have no care. We don't give a rip about God. We don't give a rip about other people. We just want to be satisfied. So we aimlessly pursue those things. But Jesus on the cross declared, it is finished. On the cross, you can picture this reality. Jesus cracked the back of sin and death over his knee. 
I mean, he just cracked it in half. And the Spirit now comes and he breathes life into your dead lungs and he rips your chest open and he grabs that dead heart that's not beating and he pulls it out of your chest and he gives you a heart that's alive, that's beating with the rhythms and the ways and the will and the worship of God. That's what Jesus does for you. Scripture says the Spirit of God has written the law of God on your heart. He's written the law of God in your heart. That means God's law is good for us because it's God's good ways for us. But Jesus accomplished that for us. So here's the truth this morning. If you know Christ, if you have been saved by faith in Christ, you can do something now that you were never able to do before. Not sin. Not sin. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't sin. In fact, 1 John tells us that if you say you have no sin, then you're a liar. You're a liar. We all know that every morning, every day, we deal with the reality of sin that remains within us. But here's something that was possible for you now. You're not captive to it anymore. You can say no to it now. You're not enslaved to sin any longer. You're not the same person anymore. This is what 1 Peter 2.24 is saying. In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus took on our sin as he was nailed to the cross. Why? Peter tells us that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we could die to sin and be able to live to righteousness, actually walk in the ways and the will of God. This is what it means to be saved. You once were shackled, but if you know Christ, then you're saved and you're no longer captive. See, in Romans 7, 24, Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? And he answers his own question in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not you. He doesn't say, well, because I'll figure it out or because somebody will tell me something that will give me some tips on how to do this. No, it's in and through Jesus and him alone. God, being rich in mercy, saved you. And this comes by grace through faith in Christ and him alone, who he is and what he's done. If you are saved, this is your standing. Through Christ, you are reconciled and made right with God. And he did all the work. There's there's nothing that can change that. Maybe you find yourself sitting here this morning thinking, though, man, I've never heard this before. Or maybe thinking, well, that's good news for some people, but not for me because you don't know the things that I've done in my life. I've cursed God before. I've walked away from him. I don't even believe that he's real. I've messed up too much. I'm not good enough. Or maybe some of you here this morning think, I don't need God because I am good enough. I do enough good things. I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. But listen to me. Jesus offers himself to the disqualified. He offers himself to the disqualified. No one can qualify for grace in any way, shape, or form. God lovingly and lavishly gives it to you. That's why it's grace. Because what every single person deserves is not God's love, not God's relationship, not his grace, not his reconciliation. What we all deserve is condemnation and captivity. But Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to heal the sick, not those that think that they're well. He came to to raise the dead, not those who think they're already alive. He came for the disqualified and he offered himself, the only one who's truly qualified in your place. So let me ask you this morning, do you know him? Do you know him? And if you don't know him, will you come to him? He offers himself to you to take off those shackles and to save you.
But here's the truth that I think whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian that we all need to understand and we need to hear this morning. When you place your faith in Christ, when you trust Jesus for your salvation, something immediately changes for you. It immediately changes for you. And this leads to our last point. You are no longer captive or condemned. You are set free. You're set free. I want you to listen to these verses. I've already read them this morning and I know some of you have probably heard these so many times. Some of you probably haven't memorized. Maybe for some of you this morning, you've never heard them. But I, I want you to listen to them with fresh ears this morning. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Over the summer... I was driving around Fairfax, and I drove by uh, the George Mason Fieldhouse on 123. If you've driven down 123, you're going south. It's on the right-hand side. It's that big old building uh, that's right there on, uh, on 123 in University. And I drove by, and they were doing something on the roof this summer. I, was, I wasn't sure what they were doing, but I took a few more trips up and down that road and drove by. I realized what they were doing. They were painting the word Mason in giant letters across the front of this building. So now if you drive down 123 and you look over to your right, there is no question of who that building belongs to. It says Mason all over it. There's no question about that. Romans 8.1 if you're in Christ, Romans 8.1 is like a great, huge sign, a banner written large over your life. It's written over your life. So when the enemy condemns you because of your sin, it says, no, you belong to Jesus. When your flesh condemns you because of your sin, it says, no, you belong to Jesus. When other Christians condemn you because of your sin, it says, no, you belong to Jesus. See, the truth of Romans 8.1 is the declaration not made after you've proven yourself, not after you've abstained from sin long enough, not after you've been sorry enough, not after you know enough. It's declared over you at the very beginning, at the very start of your Christian life. There is now no condemnation for you in Christ. And it stays that way the whole time. It never fades. It never goes away. It's there at the beginning, and it remains throughout your life with Jesus. See, the banner that waves over you, the banner that stands over you, that gives you comfort and security, that declares your most preciously purchased freedom is not the flag of your country. It's not the flag of your family. It's not the flag of your good, hard works. It's the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ that declares to you and the world there is no condemnation for you because you belong to to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. It's a banner that declares, yes, I was jacked up and wicked and rebellious and imperfect and flawed, but now I'm forgiven and set free and I'm new and I'm being made new. Declares that you belong to the God of all creation who purposed to rescue you out of the muck and mire and place you on the solid rock of his infinite, eternal, fatherly, divine love for you to pull you out of darkness and death and place you into the kingdom of light and life. But as one pastor asks, how is it that being forgiven has made us feel so guilty? Being loved has made us so uptight. 
in being free has made us so bound. I think it's because we've, we've all been told a lie. We've been told a lie. God saves you by grace, but you better get to work now. God saves you by grace. Yes, you're saved. You can't lose your salvation. But if you really love him, then you'll prove it to him. You'll prove it to other people by getting to work now, by sinning less and doing more good things. No, no, church, listen this morning. He is already pleased with you and he'll always be pleased with you, not because of anything you do, because of everything Christ has done for you. Everything he's done for you. You were shackled, trapped like that bird and Jesus came to save you, not condemn you. John 3, 16 and 17 tells us that. And in saving you, he came to set you free. Free from shame and guilt and free from sin. The bonds around your hands and your feet and your neck and your heart and your mind are broke. And if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. So do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that you are free from the law of sin and death? Do you believe that you are no longer captive, that you're no longer condemned? When you begin to grasp the reality of Romans 8.1, that your status and standing with God has not changed and never will change because of what Christ has accomplished for you, it's freeing. It frees you to be honest with God and honest with other people because there's no need to fear any longer. There's no need to have shame any longer. You can be honest with God about your sin. You can be honest in community about your sin because there's no condemnation for you. That banner is written over your life. It can also free you to keep fighting against the sin that remains because it isn't who you are anymore. You have a new identity. So every time you wrestle with sin, you can tell yourself and you can have other people tell you this is not who you are anymore. You've been set free. See, I think one of the greatest sins in the church and amongst Christians that they can commit after coming to know Christ is a constant focus on your sin. A constant focus on your sin. This is your stance. You are set free. This is who you are. But how often it can get, that identity can get confused and it can get, it can get muddied and distorted and disregarded and even just completely forgotten. In the midst of fighting against sin in a broken and jacked up world, we've, we've forgotten or we've misunderstood or we've just missed out completely on how to actually do this. How do I actually continue to put sin to death? Like Paul says in verse 13. Because see, we hear things like, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so we think, well, I, I got to do that. And so we, we start to figure out how we do that. And we most often seek to do it on our own. See, the reason I'm preaching on this this morning, the reason we're looking at Romans 8 when we're talking about freedom from sin is very simple, and it's this. Verse 13 comes after verses 1 and 2. Do you get that? Verse 13 comes after verses 1 and 2. We can't just look at verse 13 and say, okay, what I'm supposed to do is put my sin to death and disconnect that from what Jesus has told us through Paul in verses 1 and 2. You are able to put your sin to death, not by self-will and definitely not through the forced efforts of others, but by your union with Jesus. The fact that you are in Christ. Union with Jesus means you're united to Jesus. You are, you are literally connected to Jesus. Once you were enslaved and shackled to sin, that has been broken for you, and now you're essentially enslaved and shackled to Jesus, and that can never be broken. It can never be broken. If you are in Christ, you are no longer captive to sin. You're no longer condemned. 
The deeds of the body can be put to death by the Spirit through the death and resurrection of Jesus that's yours in Jesus. They really can. Anything you're struggling with right now can be put to death in your life, not because you're really good at overcoming it, not because you read a good book about how to defeat your sin. They're overcome because of Jesus. See, the implications of what God calls you to in verse 13 are the outworkings of God's declaration over you in verses 1 and 2. We can never disconnect those two things. You're no longer captive or condemned. You are set free. As another pastor says, if this is not the overwhelmingly dominant way in which we think about ourselves, that we are in Christ, that we're united to Jesus, then we are not thinking with the renewed mind of the gospel. If that's not how you think about yourself, that's the primary way you think about yourself, that you are united to Jesus, that you are in Christ, and you've forgotten the goodness of the gospel. You know, something that's really important on a journey in life is trajectory. Right? I mean, you know what trajectory is? It's kind of the path you're going to take. And, and, and at the beginning, it's not a big deal, but if your trajectory is off just a tad bit, Right here, you're okay, but eventually you're going to start to be like this, right? I wanted to be over here, but now I'm way over here. If you play golf, you know trajectory is important, right? I mean, I'm about there. i got a great swing. I'm going to line it up, and it looks great right when it comes off the tee, but then it just takes a hard slice to the right because the trajectory is off, or it goes to the left, and the trajectory is off. It's not going where I want it to go down the middle of the fairway. Trajectory is important in lots of places in life. And I just want to say this morning, as a church, I believe that we have been a bit off in our trajectory when it talks about overcoming and dealing with personal sin in our lives. When, it talk, when we talk about sanctification, that's a churchy word, right? Sanctification, it means becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy. And that's important. It's important for us to pursue holiness and, and righteousness. But I think we've been a bit off on how we've talked about that. See, at Sojourn, and I think oftentimes in in certain circles of Reformed Christianity, what happens is, is we talk too much about our sin without talking more about our Savior. If all we do is focus on our sin, if all we do is fill out worksheets about our sin, and not overly and abundantly set Jesus before one another, then we're missing the point of our sanctification, of being like Jesus of becoming like Jesus. See, if our tendency, if we, if we go down this road of focusing so much on our sin without focusing on our Jesus, then we're going to turn inward. But, but that's not what we're called to, not inward gazing and probing. See, I think this is where some of the Puritans got things wrong. Yes, I just said that. They can get things wrong. If you know anything about the Puritans. They have lots of great things to say, but I think this is an area that some of them got this wrong because the basis and security of life-giving, life-changing nature of our faith, it doesn't reside within us. It's outside of us. It's outside the camp on the cross in the empty tomb. And so that's where we must look and that's where we must go if we're going to walk in our freedom and out of the jail cell of our sin. Listen to me. Condemnation never leads to transformation. Condemnation never leads to transformation in any way, in any way, shape, or form. And something I think that Christians sometimes do is they dress up condemnation to look like speaking truth, and they expect people to change when they say these things. We're some of the worst offenders of condemning one another. And we say, brother, sister, I'm going to speak some truth into your life because I love you. 
And all we do is beat each other over the head with more and more condemnation. But condemnation never leads to transformation. The key to killing your sin is your union with Jesus, period. It's your union with Christ, period. And this is where community comes in. The role of community, the role of this church family is not to listen to one another, confess sin like a priest, but never offer each other Jesus. We need to be offering each other Jesus. It's never to do violence to another person's sin. Romans 8.13 says to put our sin to death, but this isn't done by other people. It's done by the power of the Spirit within us. See, what you and I are called to do with one another is to shoo each other out of the prison cells. To shoo each other, just like that bird, to shoo us out of our perceived prisons into the freedom that we actually have in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day, every single day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. It's deceitful. It lies to you. As one pastor said, sin is never truthful about where it's going to lead you. Sin is never truthful about where it's going to lead you. But that's why God has placed us in one another's lives. It's why community in the local church is so important to have people in different life stages and different places in their spiritual journey to walk with one another. But something we need to understand about Hebrews 3.13 is the word exhort does not mean rebuke. See, I think sometimes we, we, don't, we, we misunderstand words and we think, well, exhort means I need, to, I need to hammer some people on their sin. I need to tell that guy in my community group he needs to stop doing something or this girl that she needs to start doing something. That's not what the word exhort here means. The word exhort here means to encourage. It means to, to earnestly support. So he says, earnestly support one another as long as it's called today, every day, because sin is going to lie to you. So we need one another to support one another. It, it means setting Christ in front of one another and encourage one another to walk with him because he's already won the victory for you. I think sometimes we can talk about, I have victory over my sin or I want to have victory over my sin. We don't need to say that because Jesus already has victory over your sin. He's already set you free. Now you can walk in freedom with him. See, becoming more like Jesus is a lifelong, gradual, progressive process. And I am confident for every single person in this room this morning, and I honestly and truly believe this, I'm confident that you can walk in freedom from sin when you remember who you are in Christ. When you remember who you are in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that and we need to remind each other of that. We were shackled, we've been saved, and now we're set free. So what kind of church are we? Is this a place where we can be honest and real with one another? Where we can look at one another and know that no one is perfect. No one has it all together and that everyone is welcome. That all of us are works in progress on the road of God's grace. Can we help each other walk in the freedom we have from sin and to remind each other that we're not captive or condemned? I mean, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Where I can get up here and I can let you know that I am messed up and I sin, and that's not surprising to you. It's expected. 
where you can come to community group and you can be honest about your life. You have no fear of, of confessing sin because you know that the people in your community group are going to set Jesus in front of you and say, brother, sister, thank you for being honest. You are set free. Your sin has been forgiven. It's been paid in full. What if we spent more time in community with one another seeking to stoke the fire of loving and being loved by the Father instead of asking each other how well we've done not sinning this week? What would that look like? What might God do if we sought to stoke that fire? What if we sought to gently restore those who are struggling with sin? What might God do in here in this body? What might he do out there in our community, in our city? At the end of the day, this comes back to our view of God. Sinclair Ferguson's a pastor down in South Carolina, and he has a great book that, he, that I was reading about this. And I just want to read a, a couple of things out of here because I think it hits the nail on the head. But this comes back to our view of God. He says, if we come to think of God as one whose total focus is on exposing our sin, do you believe that about God right now? That God, what he cares most about in your life is exposing your sin. He says, if we, if we believe that, we will become too short-sighted to see his grace. We would be plagued by a spirit of doubting and mistrusting the Father of lights who gives his good gifts to us. We will find that we have become, become incapable of responding to him and his law within the father-child bond of love. He goes on and says, when people are broken by sin, full of shame, feeling weak, conscious of failure, ashamed of themselves, and in need of counsel, they do not want to listen to preaching, and I don't just mean preaching up here, I mean when we talk about it, life with each other. Preaching that expounds the truth of discrete doctrines of their church's confession of faith, but fails to connect them with the marrow of gospel grace and the Father of infinite love for sinners. It is a gracious and loving Father they need to know, and it's a gracious and loving Father that you need to know. Today we celebrate four years together as a church and God has done some amazing things in the life of this church. There are people sitting in seats here this morning that in the midst of this four years at some point didn't know Jesus and now they know Jesus. They've come to understand the reality of the gospel in their lives. People are seeking to walk with Jesus. Community has been built and rooted and, and, and built up and the gospel has been fostered. But what kind of church will we be? Where Will we be in the coming years, specifically when dealing with one another and our sin? Ferguson challenges us on this. Will we be like our good Father and have a heart of grace? Will we be people who see God bringing lost sons and daughters home and run to them and embrace them and weep with them, weep for joy that they've been brought home, asking no questions? placing no qualifications on them, no conditions for their acceptance in this community? Or will we be like the older brother that we talked about last week who would not, does not, will not, cannot join the party, who cannot be comfortable at a party when he still wonders if his once wayward brother or sister is sorry enough for their sin or has sufficiently been ashamed of their faults? Sojourn, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. And real and true repentance happens when you're grasping onto Jesus. It happens when we believe and we remind one another, as John Wesley said, that Jesus is more full of grace than you are of sin. And friends, that's freeing news. 
It's amazing news. Jesus' church, this church here, is made up of former dead men and women who have been made new in Christ and are being made new in Christ. This is not a club for the perfect. It's a hospital for the sick and the broken and the weak. And so if that's you, you find yourself in good company this morning. And I want to invite you to come in and drink deeply and freely of God's grace and freedom that's offered and given to you in Christ. Brothers and sisters, remember who you are. Remind one another of who they are. And let's continue to fight against the sin that remains from a position of victory and freedom in Jesus. Written large over your life is this. In Jesus, you are no longer captive. You are no longer condemned. You are free, so go and sin no more. We're going to come to the communion table now. Do you know why we call it communion? Do you know why we do this every week? What, what, what eating, in the bread and drinking the, eating the bread and drinking the cup declares to you and does for you? It doesn't save you. It's communion because it binds us together in community. It unites us together as a family. And it reminds us of the fact that we've been united together with Jesus. And it declares over you his victory over your sin and death. It is a freedom meal. It's a meal for the free. And so if you're feeling beat down and captive to your sin this morning, come to the table. Come and eat and drink at no cost to you. Jesus paid it all. You are free. If you're struggling with license or legalism this morning, come to the table. Come and eat and drink at no cost to you because Jesus paid it all and you are free. If you're ready just to celebrate the glorious good news of Jesus in your life and the life of your brothers and sisters this morning, then come to the table. Come and eat and drink at no cost to you because Jesus paid it all and you are free. And for those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you this morning not to come to the table because this is a meal for the free, but we want you to be free. This, this table doesn't make you free. Jesus makes you free. Right now, you're still like that bird trapped in that cage, trapped in that porch, Maybe not knowing that there's a way out for you, but there is, and it's Jesus. So I just want to ask you, if you don't know Christ, to hang out in your seat and tell God that this morning. Pray and ask him to save you. Tell him you're tired of trying to do things on your own and you understand your need for Jesus so that you can experience his grace. Those shackles can fall off and you can walk in the freedom of Christ so that next week you can come forward and you can eat that bread and drink that cup because you know you're free. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or to the back tear off a small piece of bread and take a cup to drink and listen to what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, glorious and good Father. And simply this morning, we want to thank you for freedom. We want to thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom that's been purchased for us in Christ. Christ. That now the banner that's written large over our life, if we're in Christ, is that we're no longer condemned because of our sin, and we're no longer captive either. We've been set free, and so now, by the power of the Spirit, we can put sin to death in us because we are in Christ. So we just want to praise you for that today. So Father, I pray as we come forward to take communion that you would refresh our souls as we eat the bread and drink the cup 
knowing that Jesus paid it all. And I pray that we would sing it this morning with joy in our hearts because we experience this freedom. Help us to be a people who can walk out of here this morning in joyous celebration for your glory because you've set us free. Help us to be the free people that we are. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.